Revelation 7 and 14, a literal group of 144,000 Jews? Question mark. Yeah, so good question. Uh, you probably knew that this was going to come up because I said the last time we met that it would. <laughs> so thank you, Art. Uh, you can sit down if you'd like to. This is a this is one of those questions that I think we should we should answer with a bit of humility because the Bible doesn't say explicitly like you know when Gabriel answers the question about say the uh, the, the goat with the, the horn he, he doesn't give any room for question he says that goat is Greece and that horn that prominent horn is the, um, the, the first king, and we can trace that in history to Alexander the Great. Super, super simple, super easy to process. But this question, who are the 144,000? The Bible doesn't give us an exact answer. And so we have to hunt a little bit. And I think that means that we should approach it with a bit of humility. And if you end up disagreeing with what I say here, uh, I'm not going to have any problem with, with uh, a different way of looking at it. But, but here's the thing I would encourage. Find your answer from the Bible. If you can find it in the Bible, I'll, I'll give it to you. <laughs> so here's what I would suggest. Um, there, there's a, a few reasons that the tribes that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, where it says that these 144,000 group is there, and that there's 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, and then it lists the tribes. Um, there, there's a few reasons why those tribes in Revelation 7 can't be literal Israelite tribes. And, and that would, this would suggest that this is a symbolic application, a symbolic group of people. So here's one reason. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel were um, taken by uh, the king of Assyria. The Bible says in 2 Kings 17, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and called, carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Now this group of 10 tribes that were taken and kind of scattered around to different places, they end up intermarrying, and by the time they get scattered around, they've pretty much rejected God's, uh, the, the worship of God, they've embraced the worship of, of false gods, and so it wasn't a big deal for the, these 10 tribes to intermarry, and some of them ended up coming back years later and uh, settling um, near the uh, near the territory of Judah and Jerusalem, and by the time Jesus comes, we know them as the Samaritans, and they're hated by the Jews. Of course, Jesus doesn't think that they should be hated because he wants everybody in the world to have the gospel, but the Jews hated them because they're not pure Jews anymore. They're mixed, and God had said a long time ago not to intermarry, and so they just kind of shun these people. Um, and so they're not, they're not pure Jews anymore, and I, I would challenge somebody to find one uh, person from the, the different tribes of uh, Israel, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, uh, just trying to find one who's a pure, quote-unquote, Jew. And uh, <laughs> today, today, find one today. And, I, you know, much less 12,000 from each tribe. But I think that's, that's one point. Um, you, you might also point to the idea that the Bible says that these 144,000 people are, are virgins. Now, find a young adult male who uh, has time and opportunity 
Um, how many of them do you think are virgins? Not many. Do you think you can get 12,000 that are literal virgins from the literal tribes of, of Israel? This, this seems like a bit of a stretch in order for it to be literal. A, a third reason is that um, who's the makeup of this group? 12,000 from each tribe. If you look at uh, how the tribes were in biblical times, some tribes were big and some tribes were small. Uh, and when you think about this, the, the size of the tribe, God gave the land to Israel, to the different tribes, based on their need. And so a bigger tribe got a bigger portion of land. And a small tribe like Dan got just a small portion of land. So why would God have exactly 12,000 across the board? Why wouldn't there be more in you know, one of these bigger tribes like Judah and less in a smaller tribe like Dan? Um, so it, it seems like this is a symbolic uh, group of people. They're, they're not intended for us to think that they're literal Jews. Um, and who, if that's the case, who does make up this group? We talked about it the other night, and I, I challenged you that you and I could be standing on that mountain with Jesus, following the land wherever he goes in the Father's name in our forehead, that, there, that that's a possibility. Well, here's why I think that that's a possibility. Since AD 34, Remember the end of that 490-year prophecy we studied from Daniel 9? Since AD 34, the gospel has not been focused on the Jews. It's been focused on everybody in the world, right? And uh, so Paul says in Romans, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit. There's, there's something about this new Christian experience that when I accept Jesus, I become part of the family of God, and Abraham happens to be part of the family of God too, so we end up being uh, part of the same family. Jesus is divine, and whether it's a Jew or a Gentile like me and you, I'm not, you might be a Jew too, I don't know, <laughs> but either way, we're part of the same, we're part of the same vine, Jesus. We're branches on the same tree. Um, and, and then in Galatians, Paul says, And if ye be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Um, so this group of people are people who are getting the same promises that Abraham got, right? Israel's promises. And, and the Bible says that all God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. That means that everything God promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whose name got changed to Israel, which is why we call them tribes of Israel. Um, all of those promises that he gave to David and everybody else down through the line, when Jesus comes and gives us the opportunity to be part of his family, those promises are for you and me. And so you and I can be part of that group of people, that symbolic God's family group of people. Now, the, the next question is if they're symbolic, this group is a symbolic group, is there literally 144,000 of them? And there's a couple ways we could go with this. The first way would be to say, yes, it's a literal 144,000 number. And you find lots of support. If you look through Revelation, you find that uh, there's lots of numbers. There's seven candlesticks, 
candlesticks, churches, seals, trumpets, and bowls. Lots of sevens. We, we've seen that before. There's a garland of 12 stars on that pure woman's head. That's in Revelation chapter 12. There are seven heads and ten horns on the beasts in Revelation 13 and 17. You find in Revelation 21, there's 12 gates and 12 foundations in the, in the, in the Jerusalem. So are these literal numbers? Are there really seven or really 12? And I would just say they're intended to be taken literally unless they say otherwise. That, that would be my suggestion. Unless they tell you to see it as a symbolic number, then make it, take it literally. But, but there's a difference between this number in Revelation 7, the 144,000, and all these other numbers everywhere else. When God says seven heads or seven horns or seven churches, he's talking about entities and things. But when he's talking about the people here, the 144,000 people, that's a very different concept. And people come to interesting conclusions like, well, there's 144,000 and they've gone through great tribulation and they're redeemed. And so these are the only ones that get to be saved at the end. 144,000, that's it. No more, no less. Or they say these 144,000 are the special group of people and, and they, they try to categorize them differently. There's, there's everybody else and then there's the 144,000. And I think both of those things end up falling short of where the Bible um, is taking us on the subject. I do think that the 144,000, because it's talking about people, and because it's couched in this symbolic language of a group of people that are redeemed by God, I, I think that the number is intended to be symbolic too. And here's two reasons for that. Um, first is, there's only two times in the Bible that God numbers people, besides Revelation 7 and 14. Two times. The first time is in Numbers 2, and it says this, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by father's houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all of Israel who are able to go to the war. Uh, that's the, the important part. Why are you taking a census? All who are able to go to war. And then this is the beginning of the 40 years. Right before they go wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they're at the border of Canaan, they're about to go in, and God's going to take the land for them. And he says, take a census of all the people, number them, all those who are able to go to war. And then they rebel, and they're like, no, nah, I don't want to go in because I'm afraid. And God says, fine, if you don't want to go in, you can wander in the wilderness until all of you that we just numbered die. 20 years of old. And they all do. 40 years go by. And at the end of that 40 years, um, there's this little interaction that's not good. There ends up being a plague. And, and then in Numbers 26, it says, After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years upward by their father's houses, all of Israel who are able to go to war. So the, right before they, they rebel and don't go into Canaan the first time, and right before they go into Canaan the second time, God numbers the people. And why does he number them? All those who are able to go to war. And later when David numbers the people, there's no need for going to war. They've kind of settled most of that. And, and so God actually punishes David and all of Israel for taking a census. And now the question would be, why does God take a census? Why does God number people in Revelation 7? And I'd like to suggest that it's for a purpose. God is calling a group of people 
that follow the Lamb wherever he goes, that don't speak deceitfully, according to Revelation 14, that have the Father's name in their foreheads, you know, the redeemed. He's calling a group of people that have said yes to Jesus and followed him, please go to war for me. And when you look at the language of Revelation, there's war all over. You've got, um, you've got a battle. And whenever there's a battle, you have, you have um, territory that is under question. Right? Somebody wants territory they don't have, and they're fighting for it. Well, the territory the Bible talks about, we studied just uh, Wednesday night. The territory that the Bible tells us is the subject of revelation is your mind and mine. God is fighting for our hearts. And you just read Revelation 7-4, and you find this interesting this interesting thing that happens. He says, I heard, and he's, he describes his 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe, etc. And then in Revelation 7, 9, he turns and he sees, and what does he see? Does he see 144,000? No, he sees a great multitude that no one can number. And, and here's what I get from, from putting these little pieces together. I think that the 144,000 is a group of people that say yes to Jesus, and are saved by his grace. And a group of people that are called, because right there in Revelation 14, it describes this group of people, and then it has three angels that give these special messages to the world. It says they're flying in the midst of heaven. We're going to study that um, in the coming night. But um, this group of people, description of the group of people, are immediately followed by this, this message. And I think that God is calling this group of people to take that message to the world at the end of time. And so they are people that God has redeemed, people that he's called to give a certain message to the world, and thirdly, they are people that live to the time of Jesus, of his second coming. Because it says that uh, in Revelation 7, um, I think it's 14, it says that they um, have gone through great tribulation, and that great tribulation is described as something that happens just before the second coming. So um, I, that, that's what I presume, that's how I put it together, it's what makes sense in my head. Um, it's a literal, a, a symbolic group of people, symbolized by Israel, but indicating God's family from any origin that have accepted Jesus. They're redeemed by God, they have been called to go to war, and the result of their battle is a great multitude that no one can number. And I think when, when I see the battle that God is waging in Revelation, and then I look at Revelation 7 and I see the results of the great multitude, I know God has won the hearts of a lot of people. And that group of people, the 144,000, get to be part of that story. I, I think that's good news. And, and for me, I don't need to worry about whether I'm part of that group or not. I just want to be around and say yes to God. And if he says, can you, can you tell my story? I'll say, sure, God. And if I end up being alive until Jesus comes and they somehow call me part of the 144,000, then you know what I'm going to say? Only Jesus is worthy. Not even me. Certainly not me. Only Jesus is worthy and praise the Lord that I can be part of anything he has to be. Okay, so 
I don't know if that makes sense. If it doesn't, that's fine. If you have more questions, if you want to challenge me, if you've got a different Bible verse, please throw it in the question box. I am itching for questions. Any question will do. If it's about the Bible of any subject, I'd love to answer a question. All right. Tonight, the coming of the lawless one. Um, we're going to dive into a subject that we're going to have to build a, a, a bit of, we'll have to do a little homework on in order for us to understand. So tonight's the homework, and the next couple nights we get to finish that trilogy and get um, dig in quite a bit, and we'll really reap the rewards of what we do tonight on Wednesday night next week. Um, that's coming up tomorrow night. Revelation's the sign of God. God describes something that will distinguish his people at the end of time. What is that? Um, and that's, that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow night. Um, on Sunday night, Revelation's Forgotten History, something that most Christians believe is in the Bible, and we're going to do a little bit of a trivia hunt and see, is it in the Bible? And uh, it's, it's not just a trivia thing. What we talk about on Sunday night is critical to understanding the Bible's message in Revelation. Um, so that's going to be an important subject. On Tuesday night, a river runs through it. Um, we're going to find this train of thought that stretches from Genesis to Revelation. And what we find is that people who discover this amazing experience say that they live happier, more peaceful lives as a result. So we'll talk about that on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Babylon Rising, this is where we get to talk about the Antichrist and who is this beast in Revelation 13. And we're going to explore that, and I'll give you some tools, and like I said before, when we're done, you're going to tell me who this Antichrist beast, whatever power is, from Revelation 13. And then, again, we, we skip Monday and Thursday, so on, uh, on Friday night, uh, the question, what happens after you die? And you might be thinking, this is just a random thing he wanted to throw in there, but it's, it's not. This is actually a subject of Revelation, and a really important one, something that ties some of these pieces together that Revelation talks about. Now, as we are kind of wrapping up this series, we're, we're about the second half, um, we, I, I just want to throw in a couple extra um, days so we don't take it too long, but we're going on a Saturday morning, 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and we're going to look at Secrets of Answered Prayer. And I just want to say there is a key in the Bible that will guarantee that every one of your prayers gets answered. So come Saturday morning, 11 o'clock, um, right here, and we'll have um, that extra uh, extra series or extra message. On Saturday night, God's strange act. Before human history comes to a close, the Bible describes something that is completely out of character for God. Something where God has been pursuing and wooing and drawing and saving, and then something changes. And we're going to look at what the Bible describes um, as hell. And we're going to explore this subject. And I think what you'll find is when we study this from the Bible, that you're going to get a picture of God, a beautiful picture of God, that you, you probably wouldn't have imagined would come from a subject like this. Um, I think it's, it's actually a really neat subject. Even, even though it's an issue of judgment, uh, there is beauty in it. So then on Sunday night, a desolate planet. And if you've been itching for the subject of the millennium, this is the night we're going to get to do it, a week from this Sunday. But tonight, we're going to be talking about the coming of the lawless one. Now, I, I mentioned uh, last time we met that 
when we talk about Revelation 12, 13, and 14, we're looking at kind of the, the pinnacle of the book of Revelation. And all these subjects that are in these, these three chapters uh, are, are the stuff that Revelation builds to and then um, supports afterwards. So we talked a bit about Revelation 12, when war broke out in heaven. Um, we took a little bit of a look in Revelation 14, and we're going to do that again in the coming night, a little bit more detail next time. And then um, Revelation 13, we're going to get to in the coming night as well, this beast that comes out of the sea. But to, in, in order to understand Revelation 13, and, and also some in Revelation 14, we really need to build a foundation. We need to do some homework. And so that's what we get to do tonight. And, and what we're going to be doing tonight is not new to the Christian church. It's not like I'm going to share anything that, that hasn't been shared for hundreds of years. Um, but we've kind of lost track of this in the Christian church recently. And I'll share a little bit of that with you tonight. But let's start with a prayer. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we need, uh, we need your wisdom. I first want to say, please forgive me of my sins and give me the kind of words that would represent your character and your truth. And secondly, I pray that you would send us your spirit. You said that spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and so give us that discernment tonight. Uh, help each one here to be able to, to comprehend what your word is saying, and to take it home and study it out for themselves, and to know for, for sure what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the other night we studied a very important subject, the second coming. And uh, we examined the, some popular theories and we talked about uh, some certainties, things that we can know for sure about uh, the second coming. And if you didn't, if you weren't there for that night, uh, make sure to grab one of the, the study guides and review that. One of the things that we looked at was something that Paul said, um, and he says it's a, a huge thing at the end of time, and he, he kind of says this will happen and then the second coming. So um, here's 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 again. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Remember we talked about some popular ideas where Jesus takes the, his people first and then the Antichrist shows up? Here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul suggests the Antichrist is there and then the second coming happens. So um, we're, you know, it kind of challenges that narrative. And then he says, um, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There's no question about the order of events here, according to Paul. The Antichrist comes, and then Jesus comes. But I want you to notice two things here. First of all, he says that there's a falling away. This is an apostasy. And then he says the man of sin appears. So these are, are two things that are, are kind of connected to each other. And they happen before Jesus' second coming. Uh, but Paul goes on to say something very interesting in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Uh, Paul says we can expect this falling away, but he says it's already in process. It's already happening in his day. Which means that there's, there's a development. Right now, in Paul's time, we see the roots. But as time progresses, that the roots grow into something more significant, and the fruit ends up being this lawless one that comes. 
So something about this, and we'll, we'll come back to it and get some details about this when we're looking at Revelation 13, but the roots are already in the early Christian church. The fruit comes a lot later, close to the time of the end. Now the issue here is lawlessness. You see that? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And, I mean, if you look through the generations, it's not that lawlessness hasn't existed before, but I think that um, if you look at 2 Timothy, you'll find a lot of the things that 2 Timothy describes towards the end of time apply to, even, you know, to our time today. He says, This know also that in the days, the last days, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. Does that sound like the culture we live in today? It, it really seems like this applies in our environment. You and I live in a world of brokenness, of endless lawsuits, of uh, divorce, uh, abuse. Uh, you look at, at uh, the statistics about uh, trafficking, sex trafficking, and they say that there are more people enslaved today than there have ever been in all of history. It's it, trafficking, human trafficking is worse now than it's ever been. And uh, when you think about when you think about where we are today, it's hard to imagine um, that if you look back, what, 50 years, people aren't locking their doors. Even when I was a kid, which wasn't 50 years ago, um, my mom wasn't worried about me when I went um, off on my bike and didn't come back until it was dark. Right? But today, we don't let our kids go around the, the neighborhood uh, on their bikes. We walk around the area that they're riding their bikes. We want to see them. And there's concern that we have today. 50 years ago, you might not have thought that that was going to happen. But today, um, we have this, this worry, this anxiety, because we live in a world that is lawless. Even though this is a profoundly religious nation, we still deal with all, this, uh, all these problems. And the question is, how did this happen? How do we get to the place where we have this moral, moral problem. Well, there's one idea. One idea would be that uh, this idea of situational ethics. Have you heard this before, this idea of situational ethics? Um, you've probably heard it maybe with a different term. I'll, I'll explain it. It's um, back in the 1960s, a guy named Joseph Fletcher uh, suggested this. We sometimes call it relativism today. Have you heard that term, relativism? Okay, so the idea is that what is good in one situation might be bad in another, and what's bad in one situation might be good in another. And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, let's suppose that you crash your car, you're out in the country, um, your, uh, your spouse is trapped in the vehicle. And so what you do is you, you jump out, you run to the nearest uh, farmhouse, right? You knock on the door, but the guy is uneasy, he's afraid. And so he doesn't let you, and he doesn't answer you. He just closes the door and says, go away. And you're needing help. You need somebody to call 911. You need somebody to come help you get your, your wife out or your husband out. Um, so uh, you see the kid playing around back. And, uh, and 
the question is, how hard would you be willing to twist that kid's arm to convince him to open the door and let you in to, to, to call the police? That's an actual example of uh, a, a situation that is described in a psychology textbook. And you know the, the, the question about would you torture a kid in this situation in order to save your spouse's life um, is kind of a crazy question. I mean, how many of us would be in that situation? I mean, that exact situation. And, and what they try to do is, is um, they try to, to, to use these obscure and not likely scenarios to get you to think and question the idea of absolute right and absolute wrong. So like, for instance, you know, uh, it's, it's the, uh, uh, you're protecting somebody, uh, maybe uh, Jews in the time of, of Germany or uh, you know, uh, an escaping slave in the time of the Civil War or something like this. You're, you're helping somebody. Maybe they, they're under the floorboards. You know, the police come or the militia come or whatever, and they're trying to, um, to, to, to get this person. And so they ask you, uh, do you have, are you hiding somebody, right? And what would you say in that circumstance? How many of you have been in that circumstance before? These are obscure circumstances. You know, is lying okay under certain circumstances? And, and you might be, when I describe that, you might be in favor of lying or of, of abusing that kid in order to save your spouse, right? Uh, and and that would, if, if so, that would highlight exactly what our culture has been experiencing in um, social studies classes and psychology classes and humanities classes for the last 60 years or so, we've been looking at this subject of relativism and in indoctrinating our culture into this idea that there are no absolute rights and wrongs. If it's good for you, then it's good. And you see that today all over the place. Uh, from everything from gender to um, how we handle marriage to how we handle children, like every aspect of our culture, um, religion, everything is something that is relative. And so today, a lot of people are like, fine, you know, you want to be a this or a that, you know, pursue this faith or that, it's fine, if it's good for you, then it's probably good. It doesn't mean it's good for me, though. And, uh, what I would like to suggest is that this sounds a lot like, this idea of relativism sounds a lot like what Satan said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Has God really said? And when we start to question those things, we end up, we end up going like this. Maybe God didn't really mean it that way. I mean, it's, I understand that's what he said for the Bible, but, you know, he didn't really mean it that way, or it's different today. And we try to, we try to, Push those things aside. I think that this, this is a booklet that was given to teens at a school. And I think that this illustrates kind of the mindset a little bit. Early on in life, you'll be exposed to different value systems from your family, church, or synagogue and friends. You may accept some of these values without questioning whether or not they are right values for you. But you may eventually realize that some of these values conflict with each other. You know, it's like, eh, whatever, not a, it's not a big deal, like obviously that's going to be the case, different values in different places, friends, parents, religion, etc. Um, but, but there's almost this idea that it's equally valid values, and, and uh, so then it continues on and it says, it's up to you to decide your own value system, to build your own 
ethical code. You will have to learn what is right for yourself through experience. Just try things out, decide what your values are, and that'll be good. Everything's kind of on an equal playing field. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't really want my kids to think their friend's value system is necessarily on an equal playing field with what I find in God's Word. Those aren't, those aren't the same category in my mind. Um, I want them to put one value above another, but um, in, in this mindset, this culture that we live in, everything's about the same. You pick relativism, situational ethics. And what we're teaching kids is that they're the center of the universe. They find their own, uh, their own uh, purpose, their own reason for living, their own ways of relating to other people, etc. And what you feel uh, is the, the thing that will guide what's right for you. If it feels right, then, then that's going to be good for you. And I think this kind of thinking has led to all kinds of troubling situations. Um, the World U.S. News and World Report way back in 2002 said this, 73% of students said that when their professors taught about ethical issues, the usual message was that uniform standards of right and wrong don't exist. Wow, that's a long time ago, almost 40 years ago. Um, what do you think that culture has developed to today? Do we still teach that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Um, 10 to 20% of students could not bring themselves to criticize the Nazi extermination of Europe's Jews. Some students expressed personal distaste uh, for what the Nazis did, but they were not willing to say that the Nazis were wrong, since no culture can be judged from the outside and no individual can challenge the worldview of another. Okay, I think I would, I would not agree with that. I would say it is, it is okay to say that the Nazi regime and the Nazi soldiers that did those things were unequivocally wrong. That that was not, a, you know, there was no way that that was an okay thing to do. You can judge genocide. It, it's okay to say there are certain things that are wrong. Just because you don't necessarily have the experience of being inside that culture doesn't mean you can't look outside and say that wasn't right. But our world, our world is kind of confused. And we have this situation where we say, uh, it, it could be okay under certain circumstances. And what's sad is when the secular world is saying this stuff, they look at the Christian experience and they don't see very much difference. Like what, what's happening in the Christian world isn't, isn't so much different than what's happening in the rest of the world. And anybody that says that there is, and this is the case now even inside the Christian church, anybody says that there is a um, a uh, dogmatic, um, not uh, you know maybe not a dogmatic, but like a, a, a definite um, legal or, or moral code that we should follow. Anybody who says that is considered to be legalistic, um, and and uh, and, they, and they would look at it and say that's that's just kind of a nasty thing to do to, to judge people based on some moral code that you have. And we have relativism all over the place, outside the church, inside the church. But Jesus says this in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now here's what I want you to notice. Jesus is, is not talking to atheists. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to those people who call him Lord. He's talking to professed Christians. And, and he says... Um, 
over and over again that the Bible talks to God's people. It's very rarely talking to Egyptians or Babylonians. It's talking to Israelites in the Old Testament and to Christians in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, it calls the Israelites to repentance, and in the New Testament, guess what it does to Christians? It calls us to repentance. Because we go off the rails sometimes. The Bible spends far more time talking about the sins of God's church than it does about the sins of the world. And so when we talk about the lawless one, we're looking in the context of the church. Now does this, when it says, uh, he who does the will of my Father in heaven, does this sound like God has some standards? Does it sound like he has some expectations? Keep reading. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, not, have we not prophesied in thy name or cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice he's talking about Christians, followers of Christ, and he says that you're practicing lawlessness. So what's the issue? In Thessalonians, Paul says the coming of the lawless one. And in Matthew, Jesus says lawlessness. And this mystery of lawlessness is applied not to the world, but to the church. Paul says that the church is going to have the form of godliness, but deny its power. And, I mean, you look at that and you see, oh, you might go to a great church service, it's a, a great worship experience, but then you look in the background and, and the lives are incongruent with what God has asked us to do in his word. And, and in this prophecy in the Bible, there's going to be some point when, when the church will have contempt for God's moral standards, and that this is going to be a, an issue in the last days. So let's do a little bit of thinking and uh, ask some questions. Has lawlessness crept into the Christian faith? It's uh, easy to point our finger out there. It's a lot harder to point our finger right here when we're looking at something like this. And there's this Gallup poll. There is very little difference in the behavior of the church and the unchurched in a wide range of items, including lying, cheating, and stealing. Well, when you think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments say, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, don't take your neighbor's wife, right? These, these are all things that the Bible says not to do, and yet the Christian church is pretty much in line with the world in those moral practices, or immoral practices, I should say. Let me ask you this. Where do modern Christians get the idea that it's okay to sin? Where do we get the idea that it's okay to have a conflict with God's moral law and not do anything about it? Just keep living that way. I want to show you something interesting that you can find all across the spectrum in lots of different places. You can hear it on the radio. You can read it in books. Um, all over the place, you can find this. Um, this particular one, I'm not going to um, say the, the name because uh, it's somebody that you probably recognize, and I don't want it to be about, you know, me talking about bad about a person, right? So this is just a, a popular book on prophecy, and we'll leave it at that. When he, as God's only begotten son, gave himself to die on that cross for the sins of the whole world, he ended the age of law and introduced the age of grace, 
From that time on, individuals have been able to be eternally saved through faith by repenting of their sins and calling on Christ to save them. That is why it's called the Age of Grace. And I'd just like to say amen to some of that, um, because this is the Age of Grace. But notice when he says that, it's from the cross on that is the Age of Grace. And it's before the cross that he calls the Age of Law. Is that really true? Has there been some dividing line of the cross where the law no longer matters? Have we entered the age of relativism and um, situational ethics from the time of the cross on? Or are we reading things wrong? I would suggest that there is no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That the age of grace is from the time of sin, Adam and Eve, all the way on. And, and I'll make a case for it. I'll show you what I mean. How are the, um, how are the people in the Old Testament saved? If, if the grace began at the cross, how are they saved? What's the, the way that they saved? Were they saved by obedience? Were they saved by sacrifices? Um, and I would say no. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Never has been, never could be. It's not possible. The Hebrews that were sacrificing those bulls and goats were pointing forward to the promise of Jesus. We look backwards by faith and say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. They looked forwards by faith and, and longed for the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. So in both cases, we're looking at the cross. doesn't matter which side of it you're on. You're looking for the grace of Jesus. Acts 4.12 underscores this, says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Unless you live in the Old Testament? No. Even in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus, I'm sorry, not Jesus, Paul, when he says that we're saved uh, by faith, he says the just shall live by faith, he doesn't say that as a new thing. Paul, in the New Testament, saying we're going to live by faith, is quoting Habakkuk, back in the Old Testament, who says, the just shall live by faith. There's no age of law. There never was an age of law. There's only ever been an age of grace. Romans 4, 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Was Abraham in the Old Testament or the New Testament? He's in the Old Testament. And if you keep reading, it says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How was Abraham saved? How was he counted righteous? Was it by his works? It was by his faith. He believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith. By faith. By grace, rather, through faith. That's how Abraham was saved, according to the Bible. Now, there's something in this uh, subject, because as soon as we bring up the idea of law, um, the Christian church is going to say, but the law was done away with at the cross, wasn't it? Well, first of all, we've got to ask, well, what law? Because there's more than one law in the Bible. And there's several, but we'll just divide them into two categories to make it simple. Um, and the, there's one major category, and that's the moral law. 
And the moral law is distinguished in the Bible because it's written by God's own hand. It was put on, on, on two tables of stone. It was put inside the Ark of the Covenant, which we've looked at before. Is the uh, has the mercy seat of God on it. It was the, the throne room of God on earth. And it represents the throne room of God in the heavenly sanctuary. And so this Ten Commandments is inside this seat of God, the seat of his government. And of course, the Ten Commandments contain principles that are true for all time. They're, they're not um, situational. They are, are truths that matter to everybody in any culture at all time. But there's this other law. And the other law um, is the ceremonial law, the law of Moses. This law was written by Moses' hands. Now, God gave it to him, but Moses wrote it down. And he wrote it down on parchment or on vellum or something. He wrote it down um, on, on something other than stone. And it was rolled up in a scroll, and it was put in a kind of a pouch that they attached to the side of the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't inside it. It was outside. It wasn't written by God. It was written by Moses. There's these distinct sets of laws. When Jesus came, all the ceremonial laws that pointed forward to Jesus were done away with, weren't they? They're no longer needed once Jesus came. And so, in a way, you could say the law has been done away with. But which law is the important question to ask? We have always been saved by faith. Because even those ceremonial laws were pointing to Jesus, right? And looking back at the cross, we trust in Jesus we're saved by grace through faith, not by keeping the law. But does that mean the law is done away with? Does that mean God's moral law has been ejected? No. And, and here's one of the things that, that I think we can point to. If there was no moral law, there wouldn't be any sin. Think about it like this. If Jesus did away with the law of the cross, then there wouldn't be any more need for Jesus and the cross. Because there'd be no more sin. Look in 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So, no law, no sin. Sorry about that. I skipped one. <laughs> no law, no sin. If the moral law is abolished at the cross, if those laws don't matter, then sin wouldn't exist anymore. And we wouldn't be having this conversation. There'd be no need for it. And, of course, that's just not true. We do have a moral code. And we kind of inherently know that. It's not... There's something about us that says it's not the best thing to lie. Even situationally, it causes problems. Uh, what's that, that saying? Oh, the terrible web we weave when once we practice to deceive. And you know it gets complicated every time you lie. You know that it's a problem. And so that, that inherently is just kind of underscoring what the existence of a moral code beyond ourselves, beyond situations or relativism. But look at Matthew 5, 18 and 19. And Jesus says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. A, a, a jot is uh, like uh, the dotting of an I, and a tittle would be like crossing the T. Um, of course, it's the Greek and Hebrew, so a little bit different, but that, that's the idea. Not even a tiny bit of the law is going to pass away, it says, until heaven and earth 
pass away. And then he says, whoever breaks one of these, um, there we go, whoever breaks one of these, uh, least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be cast, called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever uh, does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's be honest about what the Bible says. Um, do, a, do a little experiment with me. Lift one of your legs. doesn't matter which one. Just lift one of your legs up a little bit, and then stomp as hard as you can on the other. Okay, do it again. All right? And just, uh, that, that was a simple test. Does the earth still exist underneath you? Okay, so is the law still around? Yeah. According to Jesus. Now, you might say, well, the, the, the Ten Commandments were for the Jews. God gave them to the Jews on Mount Sinai. And, uh, and I'm a Gentile. It, it doesn't apply to me anymore. I'm going to just live by the law of love. Okay, well, let's just explore that. Did the Ten Commandments exist before Mount Sinai? Genesis 26.5 talks about Abraham, and it says, Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Did Abraham keep the moral law of God? He did. Was he saved by keeping the moral law of God? No, he was saved by grace through faith. We already looked at that, but he did keep God's commandments, which would suggest they existed before Moses, because Abraham was a few generations, a few hundred years before Moses, right? Look at some examples. Back in the Garden of Eden, Cain kills Abel. But if there was a law, then that wouldn't have been a sin. No biggie if Cain kills his brother if there's no law. So the fact that the Bible points out this is a problem, that he broke some moral code, suggests that that law existed even in the Garden of Eden. What about Lucifer? This is even before the Garden of Eden existed. Lucifer in heaven, um, he lies to Adam and Eve. He lies to the angels. He covets God's throne. He calls himself a god. All of these things would be breaking the Ten Commandments as we know them, given on Mount Sinai. But it wouldn't be a big deal for him because the Ten Commandments hadn't been given yet, right? God hadn't sat down and thought, oh, yeah, let me come up with a few interesting laws to make people's lives harder. So for Lucifer, this was no problem, right? Except, no, it started a war and he was cast out of heaven as a rebel against God. So, if God's law existed in Lucifer's time before earth and in Adam and Eve's time, um, before, long before Mount Sinai, this wasn't a new idea when we got to the Mount. It was not some new thing. No, the moral law of God is an eternal law because it's, it's a reflection of who he is. When the Bible says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was back in, in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 5 and 6. That was when the moral law was being described. And it divides it into these two things. Love God, love your neighbor. When the New Testament says, love your brother, and by that you'll know that you're my disciples. And then it says that God is love. It's not saying something new. It's saying something that had already been all that time, and it's pointing to this moral law of God, a law that describes God's character of love. So why are God's laws important? 
Well, just as an example, I, I kind of like the idea of living in a place where people don't go around murdering, murdering each other. It just seems like a nice idea to not have people stealing my stuff all the time. I don't know about you, but I like the idea of having a moral code that the world lives by. There's something good about it. God's laws make sense. When he's saying, I don't want you to murder, he's saying, I want you to value life because I value life. This is who I am. Um, when God says, don't bear false witness, he's saying, I want you to be honest because I'm honest. When God says, don't steal, he's saying, I want you to respect other people because I respect other people. God is describing himself in the Ten Commandments, describing who he is. And, uh, and I think that's why the devil likes the idea of lawlessness. It's not that he, he likes the idea of bad behavior, not that he doesn't like that idea, but it's not like that's his motivation, I'm just going to be bad. No, he doesn't like God. And anything he can do to undermine God is good for, for Satan. And so what does he do? He says, ah, there's no such thing as the law. He undermines God's law because that distracts us from understanding God's character. But I'm pretty sure the law was abolished. Wasn't it? Doesn't the Bible say something about that? I've heard that too. But um, it's impossible for God's law to be abolished because it's a picture of God's character. If we were to abolish God's law, we would be saying God's love doesn't exist anymore. And that doesn't make sense, does it? It's impossible to get rid of the moral law because it's a picture of who God is. Hebrews 10, 16 says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. This is a New Testament author, Paul, writing to Hebrews, and, and he says this, The covenant that I will make with them after those days, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. In Revelation 14, it describes this group of people that have the Father's name in their forehead, and we talked about that being the character of God. This God who is trustworthy and honest and loves life. Right? These are the things that are in the moral code, in the moral law. And remember that the battle in Revelation is a battle over the mind. The, the, the battle zone is in our heads. And honestly, the difference between the people who profess godliness but deny its power and the people who are willing and the people who are willing to follow him wherever he goes is this law. And think about it. Where is the lamb going? The lamb is going to the place where, you know, he's expressing love and he's valuing life and honesty, right? These are the, the places that, that the lamb goes. And if we're not following him to those places, following his character, well, then... We're just professing godliness and denying the power. Listen carefully to First John 2. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Again, this is the New Testament. This isn't the Old Testament. This is, not, this is the age of grace, so to speak. And yet the law is still there. The moral code still exists. If you look at the relationship that the Bible describes with God, it's not just this whimsical, like, God loves you and everything's going to be fine scenario. 
It definitely is a God loves you story. But there's a love response. Relationships are two ways. God loves us. And, and you know what the Bible says? That perfect love, God's perfect love, casts out fear. And, and the result of that is love in our hearts. We love because he first loved us. Then there's Revelation 12, 17 that says this. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Um, this is this is a, a, a scenario in which Satan hates these people. And, and among the things he hates is that they keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And look at this one. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. The commandments are an important component here in the end-time scenario of God's people. In this last crisis, in the last thing that the earth experiences, just like in the Cain and Abel experience and all the way throughout history that we've seen, there are really only two sides. Those who follow Lucifer and do whatever they want. That's the relativism idea. And then there's those who follow the Lamb and go wherever he goes. Those are your two options. Satan is a liar, a deceiver, and he wants us to think that happiness is found in us doing whatever we want. If we just had that one thing, if we just could have you know, this one experience or this do things our way, we'd be, we'd be good, we'd, we'd be fulfilled and actualized and all that. But that's just not true. We know it's not true because we try things and they never satisfy us. The only satisfaction we can have is in Jesus. Why do God's last day people keep the commandments of God? Is it out of a sense of obligation? Is it just because they're like, oh, in order for me to be saved, I've got to keep those commands? No. Nobody has ever been saved by keeping the law. We've all broken it and fallen short of his glory, and the only hope for us is not in, in complete obedience. That will not save us. Our only hope is in Jesus and his mercy. But Jesus says to all those who love him, he says, those who love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. I love you. I respect you. I um, value your life and, and try to make it good. Right? I'm, I'm keeping those commands. This is my character. If you love me, you keep them too. That's what God is inviting us to. It's as simple as that. Nobody's buying their way into heaven. This, this group of people at the end of time that are called God's church aren't, aren't doing anything in order to get God's approval. They already have God's favor. They've already been redeemed, but they, they respond in love to God. Ladies, do you do nice things for your husband in order for him to love you? Or do you do nice things because you love him? If you're trying to earn somebody's love, I guarantee you, you're never going to do it. Um, I could attest to that from uh, numerous uh, situations in my, my youth where I was trying to pursue a girl. You can't do something to win a girl's heart in that way. She's, she either loves you or she doesn't, right? 
And that's the same situation with our marriages. We invest in each other, we do good things for each other, we're kind to each other because we have love for each other, not so that we can get the, something from the other person. But you might say, aren't there passages in the Bible that say explicitly that the Ten Commandments have been abolished? And I'm just going to tell you, no, they're not. Some people think they are, and here's a couple verses they might point to. Romans chapter 3, verse 28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Look, we're justified by faith, not by obedience to the law. In fact, apart from obedience to the law. And uh, sure, okay, but look carefully. Paul says you can't be justified, you can't earn your salvation, but we already do that. And if you just keep reading in verse 31, a couple verses later, it says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, the fact that Jesus has died for our sins establishes the eternal nature of God's law. If he did not die for those sins, which are by definition the uh, breaking of the law, then, then the law probably wouldn't matter. But because he did die for our sins, which are defined by breaking that law, then that law is eternally um, bound to, to his death. It is eternal precisely because he gave his life to save us from the sins of breaking that law. It's important to keep reading. Read the whole book. Romans chapter 6 has another one of these points. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Look, we're not under the law. We're under grace. There you go. It's abolished, right? Um, but here's the uncomfortable question. Have you ever been pulled over by the police for speeding? You don't have to raise your hand. One time I was on a motorcycle, and uh, there's a guy going 50 in a 55 mile an hour zone, and I thought, well, who's going to pass him? A policeman happened to be coming up the opposite way, but he was way down the road, and so I just, you know, you know gave it a little bit of gas, went around him, slowed down to you know, 55, because there's a policeman coming. And you know what he did? He pulled me over. He pulled me over because I, I went faster than the speed limit while I was passing. Did you know that you have to be able to pass while going the same speed limit? Yeah, well, I ended up getting a ticket for going 80 in 55. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so I was under the law. I was under the law because I had broken the law. The law was stepping on me. <laughs> and now, let's say that policeman comes to you and you, you did 80 in a 55. Um, which is a really not good thing. The ticket's bad, don't do it. Um, and uh, he comes to you and he says, uh, for whatever reason, he's having a good day or something, and, and he says, uh, you know what, I'm just going to give you a warning. Well, now you're under grace. But does that mean that you're like, cool, I got the warning. He doesn't matter what I do now. And you're off 80 miles an hour again under 55. Well, what do you think that police officer would do if he saw that? He'd be like, son, you are under the law again. That is, you're, you're, you're not going to get away with that. Because it's not that the law doesn't matter. The fact that grace is extended, actually, it actually confirms the existence of the law. There's no such thing as grace if there's no law. We're not under the law, not because we can do whatever we want, but because God has given us pardon for our sin. The law still exists. Romans 6.14 
For sin shall not have dominion over, over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. But verse 16 goes on to say, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Sin still exists in the age of grace. Sin still, sin still exists because God's law exists. His character continues to exist. So what's the point of the law? If it doesn't save us, if obedience to the law doesn't save us, what's the point? I think that God has the law for a really specific purpose in, in a situation where we are broken people and sinners. James 1 tells us what that is. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. The law is a mirror. It's intended for us to look at it and see our hearts. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not, forget, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. You see that? He calls it a law of liberty. Are we truly free when there are no laws? No. No, the law, it creates opportunity for freedom. Without the law, there is no such thing as liberty. There's not a free world where we can live with murder and theft and adultery. We get a free world, that liberty, when everybody is following those reasonable laws of the land. And James says that those reasonable laws end up being like a mirror. And we, we look at them and we say, oh, my life doesn't look like that. Now we've got two options. One option is we can take the mirror and we can just slam it against the floor and say, forget you, and never look at it again. That's definitely an option. But would that make us look any better? I mean, just imagine that you had some some piece of, of salad in your teeth. And uh, you're going around all day with a piece of salad in your teeth. Well, you, you happen to look in the mirror and you just get embarrassed that you've got a piece of salad in your teeth. And, uh, and so you smash the mirror and you go away and you never look at the mirror again. Does that solve your problem? No, you still have the problem. So, so the other alternative is a lot better. Um, you look at that law, you look at that mirror, you see the salad in your teeth and you're like, you know what? I should do something about that. And that's what God is inviting us to do. Whenever we look at God's perfect law of liberty, he invites us to see our own sinfulness and then do something pretty simple that we've talked about before. Confess your sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God wants to, God wants to clean you up. And that's the great part. But he says, we won't, we won't even know that we need cleaning up. Unless, unless we look into that law, unless we see what God has said and what he requires. Smashing the mirror doesn't get rid of the problem. In Psalm 19, David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The law, it, it's, it has a converting, converting influence. It, it challenges us and it prods us and it makes our conscience twinge a little bit and say, hey, um, you need to do something about this. There's only two kinds of people in our world. Just two kinds, pigs and sheep. We're all going to get in the mud at some point. And the question is, what do we do about it? 
The pigs, they like to waddle up in the mud. You don't, you're not going to get the pig out very easily. The pig enjoys the mud. And we get the option when it comes to God's law, and we get dirty, and we look in that mirror, we can either be like, ah, I love it, and we keep wallowing in that mud pit, or we can be like the sheep. And the sheep, they don't stay in the, the mud pit. They might fall in, but they're going to get out, and they're going to end up going to the shepherd at some point and saying, can you please help me get clean? And that's the difference between the people at the end of time. Two types of people. Everybody's going to have sin. Everybody's going to get dirty. But you have two options. Are you going to go to Jesus and say, could you please clean me up? Or are you going to stay in the mud? Those are your two options. Revelation 12, I'll read it again. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is an end-time scenario, and, and it's an important one for us to consider. The law is a key part of prophecy. And if we think that the law has been done away with and there's no reason for us to ever consider it, then we're going to struggle to understand parts of Revelation. And notice, who is it that the dragon hates? Dragon hates Jesus, absolutely. And, and because he hates Jesus, he hates those who follow him. He hates those who obey him. And, and in verse 12 of chapter 14, Revelation says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. This is, this is that group of people that has the Father's name written in their forehead. This is the end-time people of Jesus. From whatever stripes or background they come from, they've said yes to Jesus and they follow him. That's the distinction. There is a story about a Roman uh, jail, a uh, Roman, uh, like a, a selling of a prisoner into slavery. Um, so a prisoner from war goes to, to jail and they have an auction block for, uh, for the, the slaves and stuff. And, and this one guy, he's determined not to be sold. And, and so he, He's like spitting at the crowd and yelling um, terrible things and whatnot and being just violent, um, having this violent attitude. He doesn't want anybody to buy him. And uh, this one guy just seems determined that no matter what, he's going to buy him. And so the bidding, he, he bids him up and eventually he ends up um, winning, the, the, um, winning the bid and, and he takes the man home. And as they leave the, the city and they're, um, you know, in some cart or whatever, and and they're, they're around some bend, and, and uh, nobody's around. The, the man is, is yelling at this guy who bought him and saying that he's never going to work for him, he's never going to serve him, and, uh, and is belligerent. And they, they get around this bend, and, and the man who purchased him um, unlocks his shackles and says, um, you don't need to serve me, you don't need to work for me, um, you're free. I bought you to, to set you free. And so the guy, not really sure if he could believe it, starts to inch away, and then he runs off. And uh, a little while later, he comes back up the road and meets up with this guy again. And he says, did you really buy me to set me free? And the man says, yes. And he says, well, I don't have anywhere to go. Can I still work for you? And so he does. Faithfully, he works for him for the rest of his life. 
Some years ago, Jesus climbed a hill with a cross on his back. It wasn't his cross. It was your and my cross. And even though he was perfectly innocent, he purchased your life with his life. He paid an infinite price for you and me. He bought us out of slavery to set us free. And tonight, you are free to respond however you want. You can run off and forget Jesus, though that life will never be free. Or you can say, can I serve you? Will you be my master? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. God's plans for you tonight are huge. He wants good things for you. But whenever you take control of your own life, you end up messing it up. And he invites you, he invites you to follow him wherever he goes. I'd like the ushers to hand out um, a card tonight. And it's a card you've seen before. I gave it out if you've been here, if you're here the fourth night when we did the Man of Revelation, you've seen this card before, it's not new. You know, we've been talking about a subject that's really important. And, and it's uh, a subject that highlights the grace of Jesus. And whenever we look at uh, a, an important subject in the Bible, uh, I hope that, not just in a public setting like this, but even in your private study, I hope that you have a discipline of um, making decisions, taking a step in faith. And this is a step that you can take. And uh, th this is between you and God, and, and uh, if you don't mind, me. You don't have to fill it out, but if you don't mind, fill it out and write your name on it, and, and I'll pray for you by name. I would be blessed if, if you would let me do that. The first line here says, I believe that salvation comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I think it doesn't matter who you are here, if you've been a Christian for all your life, or if this is the very first time that you're making a decision like this, every one of us in here can say, I believe that salvation comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to say that, just put a check mark there. If you need a pen or a pencil, maybe raise your hand and... and uh, could the, the ushers hand out some pens? There's a couple hands here. Thank you. The second line says, I repent of my sins and accept Jesus as my personal Savior, believing that my sins are forgiven and his gift of eternal life is mine. Uh, tonight we've talked about what it is that defines sin, this law. And if if you looked at your life, seeing some of the things that God has asked of you, and said, my life doesn't perfectly align up, then this is an opportunity that you can say, I want my life to line up. I'm sorry, God. Please forgive me. You can check that box. The third line says, I once knew Jesus, but have drifted away. Tonight, I recommit my life to Christ. If that's you, if you've had some time away from Christ, but you want to receive him, you want to say yes to him, you want to recommit yourself to him, then, then go ahead and check that box. And, and the last one, the last one is a, uh, there, there's no intention of pressuring or anything like this, but if, if the Holy Spirit has been convicting you or you've been having some questions about the idea of baptism, go ahead and check that box and uh, make sure I have your contact information and I'll, I'll try to touch base with you in the next uh, few days and we can kind of talk about what the Bible says about baptism. We're gonna come to that subject another night. Um, but uh, if, you're, if you're curious about that, go ahead and check that box. And, uh, the ushers are going to come around with some baskets.
and just drop that in the basket. You can turn it upside down. No, no reason to show it off. Um, just between you and God and, and me, and I'll, I'll be praying for you. And as we come around, I, just, I want to say again, as we look at the Bible, taking a step in faith is a really important discipline. Now, if you are looking at a subject like the one we've talked about tonight is very different than what, we've, what you've heard in the past and what you've studied, then you might not be ready to make that step and say, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus in this, in, in understanding this. You can go ahead and uh, pick him up. Um, so you might not be ready to make that step, and that's okay. Um, in that case, ask me a question. Say, what about this Bible verse? Or I thought this. Or, like, let's explore that together. And don't, don't let it lie. Whenever you come to some truth from the Bible, if it's not clear to you yet, keep digging until it is. And when it is, then the right thing, the best thing to do is to say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you in that. And so what I would challenge you to do is, uh, as we explore the Bible, you might be faced with some things you haven't heard before, before uh, and you might need to do a little bit more study. Do that study. Take the study guide, go home, read the scriptures about it, um, go online, explore different ideas, study the, the concordance if you have one, um, explore these ideas, and say, God, what is true? And, and then when you know, when you feel comfortable that the Bible has spoken to you, and that God's truth is clear, then take that step of faith. And so that's why occasionally, not every night, but occasionally, I ask you to make a decision. Um, I, want you to, I want you to have that practice of following God in faith. Thank you for exploring this subject with me. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, tonight, we are clear on the fact that you have saved us by your grace. You are everything you ever claimed to be, and the cross proves that you are love. The death of your son proves that you value us beyond anything else, and we can see that you really are God's love. That's who you are. That's your character, and we want that kind of character, God. You made that promise that you would write your law in our hearts. And so we say, please, put your character inside of us. Help us to act like you. Help people to see us and go, wow, God is good. Please change us to be more like Jesus, we pray. In his wonderful name, amen.